new. From Washington, VOA presents Issues in the News. And welcome to Issues in the News. I'm Kim Lewis, and joining me on the panel this week are Linda Feldman, Washington Bureau Chief for the Christian Science Monitor, and Steve Reddish, VOA Executive Producer. Welcome, Linda and Steve. Well, here are the issues. The House of Representatives Select Committee's investigation into the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol building is in full force as the U.S. marks one year since the deadly riot occurred. Four people died during the attack, one Capitol Police officer died later from injuries sustained during the attack, and scores of law enforcement officers were injured. The committee's investigation into the root causes of the violence views upcoming hearings this year as one of its most important opportunities to lay out the facts and provide answers to the American people. Senate Democrats are placing President Biden's climate and social spending plan on hold as they plan to debate voting rights legislation this month and hold a vote on changing the Senate's filibuster rule. The newest surge of the coronavirus pandemic continues moving across the world, infecting both unvaccinated and vaccinated people. The Omicron variant has led to thousands of flight cancellations in the U.S. in the new year. The Biden administration is facing growing criticism over the nationwide testing shortage and mixed messages on quarantine and isolation periods. President Biden told Ukrainian President Zelensky that the United States and its allies would respond decisively should Russia further invade Ukraine. The two leaders spoke on the phone days after Biden held a second conversation in a month with Russian President Vladimir Putin amid tensions on Russia's border with Ukraine, where Russia has amassed some 100,000 soldiers. Well, those are the issues, and let's get started. Well, Steve, it's been one year since the attack on the U.S. Capitol building on January 6, 2021. Looking back at history, some of the other significant attacks on the Capitol. In 1954, a group of armed Puerto Rican nationalists fired onto the House floor from the public galleries, wounding five U.S. representatives. And in 1814, British troops invaded the Capitol building. So how will the attack on January 6 be remembered? And how is it different? The difference is that, A, it was a large mob that attacked the, the U.S. Capitol. I mean, hundreds, if not thousands, of people were on the Capitol grounds and inside the Capitol on that day. So just from that aspect, it is different than the previous attacks on the Capitol. But what I think we should take away from this is how the committee that is investigating, as well as how the Justice Department are moving forward on their investigations and how the evidence that, especially the committee that is the, the Congressional Committee, how they're going to reveal their evidence and let the public know what they're doing. They've been investigating for six months. They've reportedly interviewed more than 350 witnesses and are digging in on, on multiple fronts of how the attack happened and who's responsible for the attack. They're looking at the involvement of the extremist organizations, the so-called Stop the Steal movement, financing and coordination with members of Congress. That's what this committee is doing. And a couple of members, the two co-chairmen, 
have given us hints as to the direction that it's going. And I think that once we see them opening up hearings to the public and having them televised, the public is going to know a lot more about what happened that day and perhaps who is responsible for it than ever before. So I think that once we see who is talking, who is going to be in the witness chairs, I think we'll see much more, especially care about what happened among the U.S. public. And I would add that I think that the politics of this are huge and important in that these are members of Congress who are politicians who are conducting this investigation with their staff. And on the Democratic side, expectations are very high that there will be consequences from this investigation. But I think there's a danger that these hopes will be dashed. This committee, for starters, really what it mainly does is write a report about what led to the violence on January 6th and also make recommendations to try to avoid anything like this happening again. It issues subpoenas and, you know, for documents and phone records and bank records, but it can't prosecute people. That's up to the Justice Department. It can make referrals, but it's really up to the Justice Department to prosecute people. You know, that could go to Donald Trump on down, the, the people who were communicating with him, advising him on both January 6th itself and in the days leading up to January 6th. There's still a lot we don't know. Some of the people who've been subpoenaed aren't cooperating. The idea that Donald Trump is, himself will be prosecuted and sent to prison, I think, is remote. So Democrats have to, I think, temper their expectations that this committee will really solve anything or, or give them you know, a sense of justice that they crave. I think for a country that's deeply divided, January 6th will forever stand as a symbol of the divisions that, in fact, preceded the presidency of Donald Trump. This is perhaps the worst moment of division that any of us have seen in our lifetimes. And with Donald Trump out of office and perhaps holding office again, perhaps not, we have to look ahead to, I think, ways to bring people together. Because if we just keep you know, bashing and beating each other up across the aisle, I, I think we're opening ourselves up to further violence. And we've seen polling that shows that a, a healthy portion of the American public does actually see violence again in our future as a way to solve disputes. And I think reasonable Americans, I think, need to do whatever they can to sort of cool the heat here and, and level our heads a bit. It seems like the committee's job is to be the megaphone be the fact finders for the public and bring this all to not so much a trial, but basically showing their work to the public through the hearings that will be held starting, according to Benny Thompson, the chairman of the, of the committee, sometime in the spring. And I'm old enough to remember Watergate and the impact the televised congressional hearings had on public opinion. While there's a sizable chunk of the American public who support former President Trump, no matter what, there are people for whom the committee's work will make an impression, depending on how they show their work, how the evidence and the testimony is presented. While most polls show most Republicans believe the 2020 election was stolen from Trump, a recent poll from the news site Politico shows that there are 40% of Republicans who approve of the committee's work, 45 do not, but that 40% of Republicans leaves enough room for the committee to make some inroads on the American body politic. And then 
once it's made public by the Congress, then perhaps the Justice Department has a little bit more room to do its job and prosecute those involved. Yes, and also going forward with this, you had earlier mentioned that, you know, we can expect to see hearings and testimony being made public. So with this, do you all think this could possibly either further divide the country or maybe bring it together a little bit more? I mean, what will be the goal of these hearings outside of just putting the information out there to the public? I think putting the information out there is very, very important. Transparency and sunshine are hallmarks of democracy. Present the evidence, let everybody see it, let everybody decide what they think. The problem in this era is there are so many conspiracy theories. There's so much misinformation and disinformation available on the web. And you have the people living in their information bubbles. I guess I'm not creative enough to know how, how we can get out of this a sense of deep division. But as Steve said, you know, there's a healthy portion of the public that believe the election was stolen and, and frankly, I don't think can be convinced otherwise. My hope is that enough Americans, that a majority of Americans will continue to believe that Joe Biden was legitimately elected and that we can learn some lessons from what happened on January 6th, not only in how it was handled on that day, making sure that there's enough security when there was warning that there could be violence and we didn't have enough security, and then going forward to see potential for this possibly happening again and preparing for it. I would also, I thought it was interesting that Attorney General Merrick Garland felt the need to give a public speech on Wednesday, stating that the Justice Department remains committed to holding all the perpetrators, quote, at all levels accountable under the law. So that was sort of a hint that he's looking at everybody. He's looking at Donald Trump. He's looking at all the different groups that participated in the attack and that nobody is above the law. And especially with Donald Trump now out of office, he's not immune from prosecution. I think what Garland did on Wednesday in coming out and making his statement was he and the Justice Department have been under a lot of pressure to show some progress. And the silence out of the Justice Department as far as where their investigation stands, is, the silence is deafening, been very buttoned up and not leaking any information as to who they're investigating or where their leads are going among a lot of Democrats and people who want to see some prosecution and something happen and have some accountability for this. I think what Garland did was try to lower the temperature, allay some of the fears the Justice Department is not going to prosecute people in the fullest, are afraid of moving in being seen as political. I think that what Garland did was trying to allay those fears and say, we are working on this. And when we have information and when we have something to go on, we will let you know. Yes, and thank you both for bringing Attorney Garland's take on this, and we will continue to follow developments of this investigation in the months ahead. And looking at other developments on Capitol Hill this month, Democratic leaders are looking to debate new voting rights legislation and hold a vote on changing the Senate's filibuster rule. Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema have repeatedly said they will not vote to get rid of the filibuster in an effort to maintain bipartisanship in the Senate. And looking at this, what is the filibuster rule? And Steve, how do you see this playing out? The filibuster rule is an arcane rule that protects minority voices in the U.S. Senate. It originally was that 
you couldn't get anything passed unless you had two-thirds of the Senate voting to at least allow debate on a rule. Now it's 60 votes. And what has happened over the years is that mustering those 60 votes to argue or debate or even or vote on anything has been a major lift for both Republicans and Democrats when either has the majority. You know, Republicans are saying that this is a dangerous move to get rid of the filibuster and it will cause further division on Capitol Hill. Is this a valid argument? Yes and no. I mean, I think the danger for Democrats is that when Republicans have control of Congress and the Senate, which may well happen come January after the, the November midterms, then Republicans can use that power of not having a filibuster, not having to reach 60 votes in the Senate to pass legislation. And that is why people like Joe Biden oppose the ditching of the filibuster. So there's talk of making exceptions. What they want to do is, you know, keep the filibuster, but say, okay, in this one instance, we're going to eliminate the filibuster. And they can vote. This is just a rule. It's not in the Constitution. It's not a law. A majority can vote to get rid of the filibuster. They can, I mean, Congress can do whatever they want as long as they have the votes. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. Democrats can do all kinds of stuff if they get rid of the filibuster before they lose power. But once they've lost power, then, then the Republicans hold that. And they may regret going this way to pass voting legislation. Now, there are some Democrats who feel that these electoral reform laws are arguably the most important thing this Congress can do, looking at what happened and what Republicans are doing. Republicans are running a lot of statewide officials who would have power over future elections. Democrats want to make, they want to let everybody vote by mail. They want to ban gerrymandering, which is the drawing of congressional districts in a kind of contorted political way. They want to get, quote, so-called dark money out of politics. To Democrats, those are bedrock fundamental democratic measures. A lot of Republicans see that as the Democrats trying to skew elections and steal elections. So both sides are accusing the other of trying to steal future elections. And I suspect we'll wind up in gridlock on this. But the other important thing is this antiquated law called the Electoral Count Act, which governs how electoral college votes are counted in Congress. This is what January 6th was all about. The gathering of, of Congress to certify the election results. Some people think this act should just go away. What the ECA does is present ground rules for Congress to deal with disputes in election counts in the states. You know, the, the conduct of elections is fundamental, obviously, to democracy. And we're, we're having a robust debate right now in this country on how to have better elections and ultimately how to have a more perfect union. And that's why Senate Democrats are moving away from getting the climate and social spending plan that's been languishing in the Senate for six to eight months, putting that on the back burner, as you said, and moving forward on, on trying to get the voting rights legislation passed. Joe Manchin, who is opposed to changing the filibuster or getting rid of the filibuster rule, is the author of the voting rights legislation, and that would close some of the loopholes in voting laws that suppress the right to vote. Already since the 2020 election, 19 states have changed their laws in accordance with the former president's big lie about the election being stolen. So Democrats see getting voting rights legislation passed as key to their future as a majority party. So far, Joe Manchin has hinted that, yes, he might consider 
some change in the rules of the filibuster that would allow this Voting Rights Act legislation to move forward. If that happens, that would be key to any hopes that the Democrats have to maintain their majorities, however slim they are, in both the House and the Senate, as well as try to protect voting rights for people across the country. Okay, and we're going to have to end on that topic for the sake of time. Time now for a quick break. And when we return, President Biden addressed the nation on the surge of coronavirus cases and his strategy to combat it. Issues in the News is coming to you from the Voice of America in Washington. If you would like to download the program, it's free on iTunes. Just click on the iTunes tab on our website at voanews.com. While you're there, check out our other programs, Press Conference USA and Encounter. Also visit us on Facebook and leave a comment or two. Then like us at Current Affairs with Carol Castiel. Now back to our panel via Skype. Linda Feldman, Washington Bureau Chief for the Christian Science Monitor, and Steve Reddish, VOA Executive Producer. Well, Linda, President Biden has directed his administration to buy an additional 10 million courses of Pfizer's COVID-19 pill as part of his strategy to combat Omicron. He also addressed the American public as COVID-19 cases in the U.S. surged to record levels following the holidays. And last month, he announced $500 million free rapid test would be shipped to Americans as the country is experiencing a nationwide testing shortage. Well, some health experts say the surge will be over by the time people receive these free tests. Is his strategy working or is it too little too late? I'd say it's too little too late. So Joe Biden's mantra going into the presidency was to under-promise and over-deliver. By that measure, he's utterly failed. The first hint of Omicron, you know, was somebody had called it in South Africa, it's sort of the Frankenstein version of COVID-19. They needed to invoke the Defense Production Act and start to produce millions and millions and millions of tests so that everybody could have enough testing to know if they're infected, to isolate, to quarantine, and to protect others. That didn't happen. The CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, the National Public Health Agency of this country, they had a terrible time communicating with people. On top of that, you have a substantial portion of the public that refuses to get vaccinated. So Joe Biden calls it a pandemic of the unvaccinated, and there's some truth to that. But I also think his administration, who came in claiming to be the professionals, the A-team, you know, we've got this, we know how to do this, they have shown that they've been behind the eight ball many times and you have school systems closing down again, which is terrible for children. It's terrible for everybody. It's terrible for people trying to work from home. And as a result, we have, you know, in the U.S., hospitalizations are up 45% in just the past week. It's the highest level in nearly a year. We thought we had this not beat, but we thought we had sort of come out the other side and that we were learning how to live with COVID as an endemic problem, not as this flaming crisis that's disrupting everything and, and hurting people. 
and killing people. We've had a huge setback in the run-up to the holidays and now coming out the other side as all these Omicron infections now materialize. Now, I, at the risk of sounding a little Pollyanna, I, I would also add that there's some cause for optimism. Omicron is milder than earlier versions of the coronavirus. It's so contagious that a lot of people are going to get it or have gotten it, and that holds the promise of boosting immunity if you gain some level of immunity from having had COVID. Obviously, we have the vaccines. I think that's one of the highlights of the Trump presidency. Honestly, kudos to President Trump for funding Operation Warp Speed and allowing the speedy invention and production of COVID vaccines. One metric that's really being watched closely, hospitalizations of children is up. More than 4,000 pediatric hospitalizations took place just in one day this week. That's a new high. And how Omicron impacts people is something that is being watched very closely. If we look at South Africa, where Omicron was first discovered, the infection rate went skyrocketing high and then went almost in the same arc back down again within a month to six weeks. So hope is that the same thing will happen here and elsewhere around the world, but it's not guaranteed because a lot depends on the demographics of various different countries, who it impacts and preconditions for individuals who contract the virus. There is some hope, but there's also a lot of anger and confusion here in the United States because we don't have enough tests and people who want to get out and want to see other people feel like they need to get tested, can't find a test, so everybody is staying home. We have a situation in Chicago, third biggest city in the country, where teachers are not teaching in school. They have decided to stay home because of the high rate of infections for Omicron and how it's infecting those who are vaccinated and infecting those who have previously had COVID. So there is a lot of concern about how this variant is going to play out and then what will the government do after the variant dies down and prepares for the next wave of COVID. Excellent points you both make, and we will have to move on to our last topic. President Biden has reassured his Ukrainian counterpart, Zelensky, that Washington and its allies will respond decisively if Russia moves to invade its pro-Western neighbor. And the two leaders plan for a series of upcoming diplomatic meetings to address the crisis there on the border with Ukraine and Russia. So what can we expect from these meetings? I think we can expect more discussion, more talk, more concern, but not a whole lot of action. There's supposed to be a meeting on January 10th between U.S. and Russian officials on what Secretary of State Blinken said will be a strategic stability dialogue. But I think we're in a state of a lot of talk, a lot of concern, but not a lot of movement away from the border by Russia. I think this is going to play out over the next several months as the United States, NATO, and now the European Union wants to get involved in the conversations with Russia. I would add that it is going to be a lot of talk, but I wouldn't discount the importance of talking and meeting and just discussing. Just having these meetings and interacting with Vladimir Putin from the American side, having Biden do this and having his top diplomats 
talking with senior Russians is really important. I'm involved in a dialogue group called the Dartmouth Conference, which has been operating since 1960 at the height of the Cold War. And when all else fails, when you have, say, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and it appears that we're heading towards some kind of nuclear conflagration, you build that kind of connective tissue of human interaction, even if it's via video conference. Putin is trying to create leverage by putting all these troops on the Ukrainian border and gain concessions. And I mean, Biden well knows that he can't give an inch to Putin. I mean, this is a manufactured crisis. Nobody really wants a war. I mean, we can't guarantee that Putin won't invade Ukraine again. But there is a serious downside risk for him as well. The minute Russian soldiers are returning to Russia in coffins, that's bad for Putin. I mean, there's a reason why the Russians pulled out of Afghanistan. The heavy toll on that society eventually wore them down and got them out. Putin is just trying to send the message that Ukraine must not become a member of NATO. But that's not something that Joe Biden can guarantee for Putin. And he obviously he can't do that and won't. And we're going to have to end the show on that note as we are out of time. My thanks go to Steve Reddish, VOA executive producer, and Linda Feldman, Washington Bureau Chief for the Christian Science Monitor. I'm Kim Lewis, and thanks for joining us for Issues in the News.